May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. If you've been here over the course of this summer, you'll know that we've been tracing our way through the stories of the matriarchs and patriarchs of this faith since late June. We come this evening to a story that stands as something of a pivot or a hinge on which the larger narrative will turn. The story of Jacob wrestling with God through a long, dark night. Now much has transpired since last Sunday's episode in these ongoing stories. The notoriously wily but altogether love-struck Jacob had been outwitted by his uncle Laban and tricked into marrying not only his beloved Rachel but also her older sister Leah. Those arranged marriages cost Jacob seven years of labor each, after which he stayed on working for his uncle Laban for another six years so that he could accumulate sufficient livestock and wealth and independence to allow him and his growing family to set out toward his home country again. Home had been calling Jacob these 20 long years. Remember, when he first fled from the wrath of his brother Esau, Jacob had heard the voice of God in a dream, saying, Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will bring you back to this land, Jacob, and I will not leave you. And now, after 20 years, the time has come for Jacob to entrust himself to those promises. He has two problems, though. He has accumulated large flocks of sheep, but he's done so at his uncle Laban's expense. All through these stories, the two of them seem quite content to keep trying to con and best one another, family ties notwithstanding. Laban will be less than happy to see Jacob leave, having had the last word in the ongoing con game. And, to be fair, Laban will also be less than pleased to see the departure of his daughters and of all of his grandchildren. So when Jacob finally does pack up his family to depart, it's while his uncle Laban is out shearing the sheep. It's a clandestine escape that almost backfires. But after a mad chase, peace is made between the two men, and the journey home continues. Jacob's greater problem, though, is Esau. Remember, he'd both cheated Esau out of his status as firstborn, and he'd stolen their father's blessing. It was Esau's fierce anger that had caused Jacob to flee from home in the first place. How long will Esau harbor that anger? God's assurance that I will not leave you aside, is it safe to go back home? And so, typical of Jacob's way of dealing with things, he hatches a plan, a good, sophisticated plan. Genesis says from what he had with him, he took a gift for his brother Esau, 
200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milch camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys, a rather serious and substantial gift, in other words, which he divided into a series of groupings, each grouping under the supervision of a different servant. And he sent them on ahead of him and his family, one group at a time, spacing them out, so that when Esau came upon them one after another after another, he'd be increasingly impressed by the largesse of the gift. Maybe he'd set aside his anger and his resentment for the sake of all this wealth. Maybe Jacob, in other words, could buy his brother's forgiveness. Well, it's on the eve of Jacob meeting Esau face to face that he has this strange experience of being confronted by a shadowy figure with whom he must wrestle through the night. The description in Genesis is brief and matter-of-fact. It says, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. The shadowy figure is first described simply as a man. For it's only at the end of the story that it will dawn on Jacob just who it is he's been contending with through that night. And so it continues. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket. Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. This is how Frederick Beekner imagines Jacob's experience in his novel, The Son of Laughter. He outweighed me. He outwrestled me, but he did not overpower me. He did not overpower me until the moment came to overpower me. When the moment came, I knew that he could have made it come whenever he wanted. I knew that all through the night he had been waiting for that moment. He had his knee under my hip. The rest of his weight was on top of my hip. When the moment came, he gave a fierce downward thrust. I felt a fierce pain. It was less a pain I felt than a pain I saw. I saw it as light. I saw the pain as a dazzling bird shape of light. The pain's beak impaled me with light. It blinded me with the light of its wings. I knew I was crippled and done for. I could do nothing but cling now. I clung for dear life. I clung for dear death. My arms trussed him. My legs locked him. For the first time, he spoke. He said, let me go. The words were more breath than sound. They scalded my neck where his mouth was touching. I said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Even if his blessing meant death, I wanted it more than life. Bless me, I said. I will not let you go unless you bless me. He said, who are you? There was mud in my eyes, my ears and nostrils, my hair. 
My name tasted of mud when I spoke it. Jacob, I said, my name is Jacob. It is Jacob no longer, he said. Now you are Israel. You have wrestled with God and with men. You have prevailed. That is the meaning of the name Israel. You've wrestled and striven with God and with mortals and have prevailed. You have not been defeated, Jacob. You've been wrestling for position with others since you were in the womb, occasionally bested but never defeated. And now you see with whom you've really been wrestling all along. It is with the God who promised to be with you and to keep you always and ever. That's who you've been striving with right from the beginning. Jacob is not defeated, but he is wounded. As Walter Brueggemann observes, Israel is not formed by success or shrewdness or land, but by an assault from God. Perhaps it is grace, but not the kind usually imagined. As Flannery O'Connor wrote of St. Paul, I reckon the Lord knew that the only way to make a Christian out of that one was to knock him off his horse. The only way to stop Jacob from trying to run his own life by success and shrewdness and the accumulation of flocks and land was to knock his hip permanently out of joint, to leave him limping for the rest of his life. Limping but in so many ways more whole than he'd ever been before. No longer Jacob, the heel sneak, but now Israel, the God wrestler. It is this name that will be given to his heirs and to the nation that will be formed by his descendants, Israel, God wrestler, That name is not simply a part of Jewish identity, it is part of our identity as well. As Walter Brueggemann points out, in the Gospels, the disciples want thrones, yet Jesus counters by asking them about cups, cups of suffering, baptisms, and crosses. Like Jacob, they are invited to be persons of faith who will prevail, but to do so with a limp. Though we might prefer to be graced with reconciliation and forgiveness and healing, sometimes it is in our wrestlings, in our very woundedness, that we find ourselves surprisingly in the presence of the holy. And why should we think it otherwise? How is it that God reconciles the heavens and the earth? In the wounding of God's own self on the cross. Again from Frederick Beekner's The Son of Laughter. The sun's rim was just starting to show over the top of the gorge by the time I finally crossed the Jabbok. Bands of gold fanned across the sky. I staggered through the rocky shallows, one hip dipping deep at each new step and my head bobbing. It is the way I have walked ever since.
Jacob's first limping steps will take him to Esau, the brother whose wrath he's been trying to manage and contain with all of those gifts. Yet what does he discover when he meets Esau? Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. When offered the lavish gifts, Genesis says, Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go alongside you. There is, in the end, reconciliation, forgiveness, and healing for the brothers, not because Jacob has bought it with his gifts, managed it, contrived it, conned it, but in the end because Jacob has been stopped in his tracks and made to wrestle through the night, wounded, renamed, and blessed. This time it's not a stolen blessing. So, Consider your own wounds. Consider those things with which you limp, physical, emotional, spiritual, or some combination, and see if there might be a strange kind of nighttime grace embedded in those as well. Not that every wound or every affliction or everything with which we struggle is sent by God to teach us something, or is some sort of morally mechanistic corrective. No, no. To claim that is a kind of heresy, actually. But in the wound that you bear, in that very thing that leaves you feeling like you'll always limp, is there also something of mercy to be discovered? In Paul's absolutely paradoxical phrase, Power is made perfect in weakness. As Jesus' wounds redefine the world, maybe even our wounds and our hurts can be transformed and for us transformative. We are, after all, the sons and daughters of Jacob. And we should expect no less than a God who wants to wrestle with us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.